Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. One man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 5th, 2016. This is episode 1843 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Friday. That means it's time for the Listener Council Show. We have six great Listener Council segments today, and I'll be taking one for a cleanup uh, one today. I think it'll be an exciting project that a lot of you guys are going to want to hear about. And uh, we kind of worked out the details last night, me and the guys that are doing it together. So uh, it's a timely question and something I think it'll be cool to uh, go into your Friday thinking about what you might be able to do uh, with something that you worked on and didn't quite do what you expected, but maybe it sort of works anyway and can you make it do something even better? I'm not even going to tell you what that is until we get to the end, but let me tell you the other questions will be... Uh, Fielding today, Erica Strauss will be talking about the ins and outs of bone stock. John Pugliano will give you the good, the bad, and the ugly on 401ks. Gary Collins will talk about making sense of cholesterol levels. Brian Black will talk about concealed carries for women when jogging. Uh, Dr. Bones will talk about dealing with dog bites. And Nick Ferguson will talk about livestock guardian dogs coexisting with house dogs or family dogs. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine? Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. Next up, before we get to your first question for an expert council member, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year. 1843, because the episode is 1843. Alex Shrugged has several for us today to take a look at. We have... Westward ho! The Great Migration Begins. And we have the greatest ship ever overbuilt. That's the SS Great Britain, by the way. And we have a Christmas carol and the first Christmas card. I love Christmas. I don't want to read that one, but it's August. And it is, I think, important to take a look at the Great Migration because it is a big thing that shaped our nation. So that's the one I'm going to read today. Before that, though, I will give you the three little bullet points in other news. <laughs> For the benefit of Mr. Kite, the circus poster from 1843 will be purchased by John Lennon in 1967 and become the inspiration for the Beatles song of the same name. Melville Bissell is born. Yep, the guy with the carpet sweeper after his death. His wife, Anna, will run the company and become the first female CEO. And skiing becomes a sport. Frankly, mountain climbing hasn't been very popular for long either. The word ski is a Norwegian word meaning... You gotta be kidding me. Sorry, it means split wood. Anyway, let's take a look at the Great Westward Expansion. The first wagon trains are heading west along the Oregon Trail, but these days the roads west are not fit for wagons. 
The new settlers will have to build their own roads. The mountain men, Rocky Mountain Trappers, are hired to lead the wagon trains through the wilderness. Their task is to find a route that won't break a wagon wheel or cause a wagon to slide off a trail into oblivion, uh, um, dragging horses and people alike to their doom. They may or may not realize it yet, but the mountain men are also finding the best routes for laying railroad track. After all, railroad tracks are not much wider than two, wider than two draft horses side by side. This year, about 1,000 people will push through Oregon to California and, to, and California, cutting trees to make a path and floating their wagons down the river, whatever it takes. In 1848, gold will be found at Sutter's Mill in California. Entire towns will empty as a wave of pioneers heading west become, will become a flood. Over land and oversea, 80,000 people will arrive in California on a single summer, seeking their fortunes and supplies. Instead of panning for gold, Sam Brannan will buy up all the supplies available and sell them at a higher price to newly arrived fortune hunters. He is going to become the first gold rush millionaire. Then he's going to become a real estate speculator. And then he's going to divide, die divorced and penniless. But in the meantime, it's going to be a heck of a ride. My take by Alex Shrugged. Adventurous as pioneering sounds, it was anything but easy for Sarah and Nancy Graves. They were two of 48 survivors of the Donner Party. In 1846, they were two weeks behind the Hastings Party when an early snow trapped them in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in what is now called Donner Pass. Running low on food, they began eating their own dead. Sarah and Nancy were children. What, it, what must have been like for women and children on the trek across the wilderness? Gentlemen, when we fantasize about striking out into the woods in an apocalyptic recreation of Red Dawn, do we consider whether we packed a diaper bag properly? How about the various unmentionable feminine products our wives will need? Has anyone mentioned that? The women of the pioneer days, though, real tough, but their concerns were often different than their pioneer husbands. Thankfully, we know mostly what the road will look like before we get there. We can plan this out. No sense in making it harder than it has to be. Good take by Alex. My take is actually on... Uh, Um, what's his name? Sam Brennan. Okay, this is a, a lesson in business. So everybody's going west for gold. You would think the smart thing to do would be join the parade and go west for gold. Brennan was one of the people that looked at the movement of a market and determined how to capitalize on the market itself rather than how to participate in it. Many of you are out there trying to determine how to build businesses in your own lives because when you do that, successfully, you do free yourself a great deal. It's one of the most liberating things you can do. Rather than trying to capitalize on a market, and sometimes you just go directly capitalize on the market uh, or on the, on the action itself, look at the action and then determine out of that how do you capitalize on the action. So what can you do to enable all of the people in quest? And, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean being parasitic. Um, You know, I'm sure people used the shovels and picks that they bought from Sam Brennan, and uh, some found gold and some didn't. He just simply sold the picks and shovels they were looking for. And there's a lesson in that in business, my take, by Jack Spierko. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the first question for today's show. This is a question for Erica Strauss, and it's on bone stock and how to make bone stock. And can you do it with a crock pot, or does it have to be boiled for days and days? And what's the difference between stock and, and broth? And how do we do all this? Erica, help! Broth confusion! 
Hello, TSP. Erica here calling in to answer Brandon's question about bone broth. Brandon wants to know if he needs to cook his stock for days and days and days to get the health benefits of bone broth. And if so, if he should use a crock pot to achieve this. Okay, so bone broth. When it comes to bone broth, I'm a bit of a contrarian. Um, there's this sort of magic woo-woo mysticism that's risen up around bone broth that drives me a little nuts, honestly. It has people convinced that if they don't do things exactly right, they're betraying the gods of traditional foods and they're going to be punished with like gut microbiome imbalance or something. And I say this as one of those woo-woo food people who ferment everything and care about nutrient bioavailability and all that stuff. But before I get into details, I think we need to define some words. I don't know anything that's done more to confuse perfectly good culinary terms in the last five years than the bone broth craze. So let's just get back to basics for a second. Although they are closely related liquids, broth and stock both used to have some pretty clear definitions. And even though they're all muddled up now by marketing, I'm going to try and define and use these words in their traditional way. So let's start with broth. Broth traditionally was a basic clear light soup made from aromatic vegetables and meat. Traditionally, broth was only simmered for a short time, just a couple of hours. And often the ingredients used to make homemade broth were left in to be eaten instead of being strained out. Broth could be drunk as is or could be garnished with other things to make a more substantial soup. This is where um, terms like scotch broth comes from. So stock traditionally is a highly flavored base liquid produced by gently simmering raw or roasted bones and sometimes vegetables or other flavorful ingredients for a longer period of time and then straining the liquid. Typically, the vegetables and the bones used in stock making are totally exhausted by the longer simmer time, and so you wouldn't want to eat them. The bones release a bunch of gelatin into the stock over this longer simmer time, which is why a well-made stock will set up like meat jello in your fridge. It'll be all springy like a jello mold. Stock is used as a base for soups, sauces, anywhere you need a flavor-boosting liquid. So like if you want more flavorful rice, you can use stock instead of water when you're making your rice. So kind of the TLDR on this is that stock is an ingredient made from mostly bones, and broth is a drinkable liquid made from mostly meat. In reality, it's a bit of a continuum, of course, because stock made from meaty bones is more flavorful, and broth made from bony meat has a better mouthfeel. But that's the general idea. Which brings us to bone broth. Bone broth is the term used in traditional food circles for a very long cooked stock designed to be drunk as is as a health tonic. While a traditional beef stock might include a simmering of the bones for eh, 6 to 18 hours, kind of depending on how big the bones are, a bone broth stock might be simmered for two or three days. Sometimes bone broth bones are soaked in a mild acid, typically apple cider vinegar, and sometimes vinegar is added to the bone broth. Both the acidulation and the very long cooking time are designed to pull out more collagen and additional minerals from the bones. So the question is, does it work? The traditional food community attributes a huge amount of health-giving properties to bone broth. But the truth is, there just isn't a huge amount of science to back up claims of increased health benefits from ultra-long simmered bone broth over a more traditional, moderate-time cooked stock. 
In fact, Brandon, in researching this to make sure I was giving you the most accurate info, I was only able to find one example of something that I would consider credible from sort of a science-y perspective, a lab analysis comparing chicken stock cooked for 18 to 24 hours, which would be a very long cooked chicken stock, and a chicken stock cooked for two hours, which is a fairly brief cooking time for chicken stock. And these lab analyses come from a company that makes and sells bone broth as a commercial product. So, you know, it's in their interest to sort of promote bone broth from a health giving perspective. But what the lab analysis show is that per 100 grams or about a half cup of stock, the long cooked stock had slightly more than twice the calories, 20 calories versus eight calories, about three grams more total protein, 10 milligrams more sodium, and a tiny trivial amount more iron, potassium, magnesium, and zinc and then about 40% less phosphorus. So the mineral content of both stocks uh, was substantially smaller than what you would get from 100 grams of hamburger, for example. Beyond these, um, you know, I think independent lab tests of this commercially made stock, I wasn't able to find anything that stands the scrutiny of science that suggests that long cooked stock is higher in minerals than regular old stock. Which brings me to the one quality or, or nutrient, if you prefer, that these tests, um, you know, don't test for, which is gelatin. Okay, so what the heck is gelatin and why do we care about it? Well, from a culinary perspective, gelatin is, is kind of a thickener. It's the stuff that makes jello wiggle and it makes stock turn really bouncy in the fridge and it gives gummy bears their chew. Um, it's used in commercially prepared yogurt and cream cheese as a stabilizer. And in culinary school, we had to dissolve sheets of dry gelatin along with stock and seasonings to create this really horrible thing called aspic that we would use to seal traditional pâtés. It was all very retro 1950s, and there's a reason no one does aspic anymore. But from a science perspective, gelatin is hydrolyzed collagen. Collagen is an incredibly common protein that provides the flexible structure to the body. Collagen is found in connective tissues, skin, bones, muscles, pretty much every part of your body has some collagen in it. In humans, almost a third of the protein in our body is collagen, and other large mammals are similar in their collagen content. When you break this collagen down by, say, simmering bones in water for a while, you break the bonds of the collagen down into peptides, which are the structural subcomponents of a protein. You can kind of think of peptides as sort of mini protein building blocks. Keep this denaturing going, and eventually you'll break the peptides down into their constituent amino acids. So, okay, we're making our stock and we're breaking the collagen down into gelatin. Gelatin is a matrix of these various peptides or amino acids. All told, gelatin contains uh, eight out of nine of the essential amino acids. So good stuff. But at the end of the day, your body breaks all proteins, all peptides, all gelatin, all collagen down to constituent essential amino acids. That's where the rubber hits the nutritional road, so to speak. Everything gets broken down into amino acids, and then the body builds up these amino acids to make whatever it needs. So with the issue of mineral content in the long-cooked bone broth versus shorter-cooked stock basically debunked, 
The question is, does the long-cooked bone broth allow us to consume substantially more amino acids than we otherwise could with a more moderate cooked stock? Well, maybe. There actually is some evidence that long-cooked stock contains more available amino acids than a shorter-cooked stock. According to the one lab analysis I could find, long-cooked bone broth shows two to three times the available amino acids compared to a short-cooked stock. But even here, we're talking about milligram differences that are pretty tiny compared to the total amino acids that you would consume if you eat almost any quantity of animal protein. So if you're not vegan, if you enjoy the occasional steak, burger, pork chop, grilled chicken, all these things absolutely swamp even very long cooked bone broth for total amino acid content. Very parenthetically, there's a little research that indicates that the bioavailability of gelatin itself actually isn't as good as collagen, the sort of mother protein that gelatin breaks down from. So you'd never want to like boil a whole T-bone steak down to make gelatin. So you could say, well, why worry about gelatin at all? You could just eat the steak. But the point of gelatin in stock is that in addition to having a lot of really great culinary value, you know, it, it tastes good. It has really good mouthfeel. It lets you get at protein that you otherwise would throw away or not consume. Stuff like bones and connective tissue on chicken, things like the feet, for example, that most people aren't going to chew and swallow. So you could just eat a steak, but if you're looking to use the whole animal snout to tail or beak to feet, so to speak, making gelatin-rich stock is a great way to get some additional amino acids that you'd otherwise toss out. So my takeaway here is that unless you're competing in the Tour de France or something, there's really no reason to worry about the small differences in amino acid content between very long cooked bone broth versus, you know, a more moderately cooked normal type stock. If your stock gels, it's rich in gelatin. And as far as I'm concerned, I think you're good to go. The point of all these things from a mineral and an amino acid perspective is that you're getting nutrition out of something you'd otherwise throw away. So Brandon, my perspective on this is that the hype on bone broth as compared to regular old stock is mostly hype. Stock, all well-made stock, even a quicker four or six hour stock is frugal, reduces food waste and boosts flavor. And so far, there's just not a lot of evidence that multi-day simmering is necessary to get those many health and flavor benefits. If your stock gels and if it tastes good, this is one of those situations where done is better than perfect. And I'd really rather see you just make your stock in the way that's convenient for you so you actually do it rather than sort of overthinking yourself to inaction, trying to make something the you know, quote, right way, if that makes sense. Oh, and about making stock in a slow cooker. Sure, if it's convenient for you, a crock pot can make an absolutely fine stock um, as long as the temperature stays low enough. I've experimented with making stock in a crock pot and actually had problems because my crock pot gets too hot, um, which leads to a cloudy stock. But as long as the temperature in your crock pot stays low enough, you can make a great stock. Um, like you, I typically make stock in larger batches, so I prefer stovetop methods, but you know, both are fine. Stovetop, crock pot, these are just different ways to apply heat. As long as you can maintain the right heat for the time you want, use the one that's more convenient. Don't force yourself to use a heat application method that's less convenient for you.
Okay, guys, so that's my take on the myth and science of bone broth versus regular old stock. The most important thing really is just, you know, make stock. The specific hows and whys are really less critical. Brandon, I hope this helps. Just keep on keeping on with your stock, sir. You're doing fine. Okay, TSP friends, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. If you like the kind of stuff I talk about here on the show, you might want to check out my book, The Hands-On Home. You can read over 90 reviews and see excerpts from the book on Amazon.com. Just use Jack's tspaz.com link. Uh, it'll redirect you and you'll be able to click on the shop for anything link and then just search for the hands on home. Thanks, guys, very much for all your great questions. Thanks, Jack, for the show, for everything you do. Guys, please keep those questions coming and I will look forward to chatting with you in a couple of weeks. Um, I completely agree. And I, I have a new um, saying. I've You know, tail to snout, or snout to tail, I've heard many times. I've never heard beak to feet before. Um, I like that. Beak to feet. We use everything beak to feet. Um, but I'm, I'm the same way with stock. It's that simple. When it's gelled, it's, if it, if when it, when it cools, it sets like jello, it's good. And I, I don't get into, like, the minutia of what's the very best versus the okay and all the nutritional stuff like that. I just know that bone broth is good for you. And I know that when you make bone broth to the point that it gels, it tastes better. It has body because of that gelatin. Um, one of gelatin's unique things is it, it is, it, its consistency is based on its temperature. You can take gelatin to a liquid and back to a gel just by changing the temperature. And that's kind of an interesting thing. And, uh, it, it allows to take that, very thick, rich gelatin and put it into a liquid form by warming it. And it makes a great cooking aid. It, it, it tastes good. It's, it's a great snack. I mean, in, especially in the wintertime, um, you know, we make a lot of broth throughout the year and I can it or freeze it. And when it's like a good cold day, I mean, in the middle of the day, you want a snack, you go warm up a, a, a jar of bone broth and, and, and sip that. It's fantastic. Um, Whatever nutritional value is there, it's not harmful. I mean, that's that's the big thing to me. I'm not thinking it's going to cure you of of uh, cancer or anything like that. I do believe that consumption of both collagen and gelatin, both of those things, is very good for the intestinal tract, though. So it's not necessarily that it cures illnesses or what have you, but anything that makes our intestinal tract more healthy is a good thing. And I think there's one thing about our whole digestive tract from... Uh, from mouth to butt, right, that people don't understand. It's best thought of like the skin on your arm. It's a hole through your body. It's When you eat something, and it's in your stomach or your intestines or your little bowel, little bowel all the way till it comes out as a waste, it's not inside you. You're surrounding it, and that's very important because if that changes, your health goes to shit really fast. No pun intended there, but it really does. If you... If you want to know like what is a very dangerous wound to occur when you're shot but you're not hit in a major artery or vein, it's when you nick intestine. It, the, the infection that can happen to the body is extreme. So we have to think of the, the entire digestive tract as a tunnel through the body that's surrounded with unique types of skin all the way through that allows certain things in and keeps most things out. And when we're coating that with, with gelatin... And we're keeping it, you know, in top shape, so to speak. And we're also providing probiotics and things like that. We reduce the potential for leaky gut. So I think that bone broth's health advantage is in overall interior 
if you're, you're going to call it interior intestinal um, structure, and that can have health benefits. But directly curing anything, I think, is preposterous. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and listen to the next one. We have a question for uh, John Pugliano on 401Ks. Hello, TSP listeners. We have a question today from Lynn in South Carolina asking about a 401K plan. Now, if you're a longtime listener to TSP, you've heard both Jack and I comment that we're not big fans of 401K plans because of mostly because of the restricted nature of them. And that has a lot to do with what they do or don't allow you to invest in and the time frames they make you stay in those invest investments. And so while we're not necessarily overly infatuated with them, we do encourage you to contribute to your 401k at least up to the amount that your employer matches. Now, the reason we encourage you to do that is because you're getting a 100% return on your investment. Now, a lot of these plans are where you contribute, say, 4, 5, or 6%, and then your employer will match you dollar for dollar. So if you're making $50,000 in the year and you contribute $3,000, your employer matches that, and then at the end of that particular employment year, you'd have $6,000 added to the principal of your account. I think that makes great sense because where else are you going to receive 100% guaranteed return on your investment? Well, the answer is probably nowhere. And so, again, to state publicly that, no, I'm not thrilled about most 401k plans because they're very restrictive in nature, I do think that makes a great deal of sense to contribute up to that amount that your employer's matching simply because you're receiving a 100% return on your investment. Now, right now, the return rate on 10-year U.S. government treasuries is about 1.5%. 10-year U.S. government treasuries are a safe investment, but at that rate, it would take you about 48 years to double your money. So do you see by contributing to the employer match in your 401k plan, you're doubling your money immediately? In my opinion, that's something that's hard to walk away from. So now specifically to Lynn's question. Lynn wants to know, is there ever a time when you wouldn't contribute to get the match on your employer's 401k? What's prompted this question is that Lynn's employer is downright totalitarian in the restrictions on the 401k plan in terms of not only the normal inconveniences we would consider like limited access to funds or putting time restrictions on preventing you from timing your trades. Well, at Lynn's company, they don't let you do anything. You don't know what it's invested in. You have no investment choices at all. And the only time you're allowed to withdraw that money is when you are, are terminated, either because you retire or because you quit the company. And then, of course, at that point, you can roll it over to your own individual IRA. So because of these Stalin-like restrictions, Lynn's concerned and is wondering, is it better just to you know, take that 6%, don't get the match, just put it in, in their own personal IRA or Roth? Lynn, I'll tell you, the only thing that personally would prevent me from contributing up to the amount that my employer matches is if I felt that the employer was somehow fraudulent or was about to go bankrupt, you know, where that money that I was uh, giving them was in danger of being lost, either through, you know, negligence or fraud or whatever. Now, in your case, you state that you think the company's pretty secure, and e even though you may end up being there another 30-plus years, Because of the reasons I stated earlier about the fact that you're, you're receiving a 100% return on your money, I think that it's still a good investment. Uh, think of it in these terms. You have to assume that the company, as long as they're not fraudulent, they're putting this in some type of a relatively sound investment where there's probably diversification in the general stock market. I mean, right, let's just at least go with that assumption. 
And if that's the case, while it's true that you can suffer a catastrophic loss like we saw in 2000 and 2008 and like, you know, we're probably likely to see in the next five years. Those of you that listen to me know that I'm a big proponent of not necessarily timing the market, but trying to avoid a catastrophic loss. In my personal experience, the way I've been able to build my wealth is that for the most part, I never suffered an absolute catastrophic loss. And so when the market did turn around, I had cash that was ready and able to be deployed to buy in at a low price and be able to ride the market up. One of the reasons I don't like these 401k plans is because in a lot of cases, it makes it very difficult for you to do that because of the restrictions they put on you. In Lynn's case, it's downright impossible. But the reason I would still consider contributing up to the employer match is that even when the market has a catastrophic loss, over time it does recover. And the reason it works so much in your favor in a contribution match in a 401k is because you're always ahead of the game by at least 100%. So if in 2008 you were in an employer match contribution program at work and the market dropped 48%, then you would have lost you know, 50% of your principal. But at the same time, that's money that was 100% matched by your employer. So even if you look at you know, the worst cases that we've had in the economy in the last 70 years, you still come out breaking even. Now, is that to say that the market couldn't go down 80%? Well, it could. I don't think that that's likely. And personally, I would be willing to take the gamble on that 4 5 or 6% of my income that I'm contributing to these 401k plans. So, Lynn, to answer your question, the only time that I would not contribute to a 401k match program by my employer is if I felt that my employer was on really shaky ground where they were about to go out of business and that money may be at risk, or if I thought that they were a fraudulent company, you know, something like an Enron, where, again, I felt that there were shenanigans going on and that money that I'm investing would be at risk. In that type of a situation, I would not be contributing, but if I were in that situation, I would also not be in it very long because I would be very quickly and rapidly looking for a new job, in which case I'd not only be leaving that employer, but I'd take my money out of that 401k plan. And so to sum it all up, other than an employer match 401k contribution, I don't know of any other place where you're going to receive an immediate 100% return on your investment. And so for that reason alone, I would always contribute up to the amount that the employer matches. Well, Lynn, thank you for your question. If you'd like to hear more about my stock market commentary or my thoughts about general wealth building principles, please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. First, I want to say I've never even heard of or seen a 401k like this, and I'm wondering if it's some kind of true employer pension with an opportunity to invest part. I, I don't understand this. Um, no control is one thing. No knowledge of where the money's invested bugs me. While I agree with John's premise, personally, I would tell him to kiss my ass. I would honestly tell you this. Um, unless I was absolutely head over heels in love with my job, I'd be looking for another job. I, I don't even understand this. I, I don't get this. Shut up. Give me your money. Here's our 401k. Well, you'll, you'll know how, you don't know what it's invested in? I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm out. I absolutely get what John is saying. But I think this is one of the most arrogant bullshit things I've ever heard. And my hackles on my neck are up that even though 
the person asking the question says they don't think there's anything in the dark here. I don't like this. I smell stink on this. This doesn't make... I would like to hear from anybody else that has a 401k, employer match, contribution up to 6%, or whatever contribution ratio it is, where they tell you you don't have any control, you can't get your money out in any way, shape, or form, which I don't think that's how 401ks are supposed to work. Um, and on top of that, you don't get not just to pick how your money's allocated, they won't even tell you how it's allocated. Uh-uh, no, not me. Jack is out on this one. John and I agree with the overall premise, but disagree on the conclusion here. Uh, but that's okay. We're allowed to disagree. On John's summation that 100% return is badass, I agree. And I want to put out another way of looking at it. If you have investment goals, and your investment goals are, let's say, 10% annually, and you manage to get a 30% return on a portion of your money in that spectrum, that means you've covered your goals for three years in one year. All right. And my philosophy is then, unless I'm in love with where that money is, I take my profits and I put my money into cash. And then I look for absolutely outstanding opportunities and I have three years to figure out where to get one. I have a safety net in my advance, a safety net in my accomplishment of getting that ex higher than expected rate of return. If we have a rate of return goal of 10% a year and we get a 100% return on a 401k, we've made our bogey for 10 years. Some people do stay at jobs for 20 and 30 years. A lot of people, 10 years at one job, you're going to be somewhere in that 10 years going somewhere else. I mean, I would say more than half of all people do not keep jobs for 10 years in today's world. They just don't. Um, because you end up figuring out that once you get experience in the three- to five-year range, it's easier to move up by moving over than it is to move up in your own organization. That's been my experience. So if I, had, if I was back in my working days and I had a 401k doing a match on 100%, on that alone I would do it because that would give me the opportunity when I decide to make a career shift to take the money into an IRA and do whatever I want on it. And I got 10 years before I need to worry about going over that 10%. And if there's a, a good conservative bond fund or cash fund in there, um, unless I'm really liking the way the overall trend looks and want to go into regular mutual funds, I can just park that money. And uh, it, apparently, since I got out of the business of giving a shit about 401ks, because I'm not employed and don't have employees and haven't since 2012, um, things have gotten way worse with these restrictions. But this thing here, this stinks. I don't like this. I, I, I'd, I'd like more information on this, honestly. I, I, I don't feel good about this. I've never heard of this. I don't like it. Um, anyway, next question is for Gary Collins on making sense of cholesterol readings. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And we have another question, cholesterol-related question. We, I've gotten quite a few of these over the years. And actually, I went into great depth on cholesterol in one of our TSP uh, expert counsel questions. I cannot remember when it was. I want to say maybe six months ago, maybe a year. But I went into great detail. Someone had another uh, great question. But uh, with this one... Mike has a concern. His total cholesterol is 249, and he's been going to his doctor. He's a primal paleo follower for about four years. Um, there's some heart disease in his family, 
And he's wondering, you know, his doctor is concerned that his cholesterol is 249. In the modern medical world, anything over 200 is considered high. That is not correct from the research and from me working with clients over the years and talking with numerous uh, naturopathic doctors or doctors more in tune with ancestral life, paleo life, primal lifestyle. Um, the general rule is anytime you get in the range of 300 and above, that's when you might want to discuss it with your doctor and start possibly thinking about statins. Now, in the last time I talked about this, I went deep into statins as well. Statin medications are, are prescription drugs made to lower your cholesterol. Well, there's a huge boom in that, and that's one of the most prescribed drugs in the world is cholesterol and statin medications. And uh, when I was at the FDA, it was either between the erectile dysfunction drugs and the cholesterol-lowering drugs. Those were the two most counterfeited drugs worldwide. And there's a good reason behind that, because they're the most popular. These are ones that doctors are prescribing to everyone. With that being said, I believe that the medical and drug, drug companies created a problem that was not there previously. Cholesterol levels, through all the research, it is very difficult to pinpoint a number that directly correlates to heart attack, uh, coronary heart disease, it just doesn't exist. Actually, you have a higher incidence of complications taking statins or cholesterol-lowering drugs than you do not taking them. That is a fact. There are a ton of negative side effects taking uh, statin, lower, statin drugs, and I only recommend those in severe cases, which are very rare. Like I said, when you're in the 300s, your total cholesterol. Now, Mike also, he gave me his HDL number, which is 64, which is your your uh, high-density lipoprotein level, and then your LDL, your low-density lipoprotein level. And there's some misnomer and some misinformation there, too, is we've been told that our LDL levels, cholesterol is bad, and HDL is good. There really is no good or bad cholesterol. Um and primarily, you need to understand that without cholesterol, we will die. You cannot live without cholesterol in your body. And another thing is 75% of the cholesterol in your bloodstream is produced by your liver. Only about 25% can be attributed to your diet. And only about 15% of that 25% will actually end up in your bloodstream. So as you can see, diet does in, is a factor, but I'll get into that later, how that works. So we look at his total cholesterol level, and there's two easy ways to figure out if you're in that category of a, a concern for coronary heart disease. The simplest one is divide your LDL by your total cholesterol. It should be about 25%-ish or higher. Uh, Mike is not. Mike is fine. Mike's right around... 25%, uh, if I remember my numbers right when I did it. And then the second one is divide your total triglycerides by your HDL and get your ratio. It should be under four, preferably under two. That's the simplest, easiest way to understand your numbers that your doctor gives you. Because what they'll look at is they'll go, well, your total cholesterol is high. It's over 200. Well, your LDL is high. Eh, those are, no. 
Now, high triglycerides, yes, but again, the easiest way to figure out if your, your ratio is off is to divide your triglycerides by your HDL. That will give you your true number. Now, with that, as I told you, without cholesterol, you will die. Cholesterol is vital in the lining of your, your arteries and your vascular system repair. It's essential for the production of sex hormones and your cellular structure. It actually keeps the integrity of your cellular wall. If you did not have cholesterol, your cells would actually collapse on themselves and you would die. That's what I'm saying. Cholesterol is what we have to have. Now, the concern is also that he has a family, he believes he has a family history. His grandmother died of a heart attack and was always overweight. His mom is overweight and struggles with many health concerns. Well, the key indicator for poor health and coronary heart disease primarily is, guess what, being overweight. And I've talked also about, um, about your waist size. Your waist is the primary determinant of your health. We call it skinny fat where people are lean, but they have a Buddha belly, I call it. Or, you know, most, a lot of people call it a beer belly because um, alcohol will cause you to store a lot, large propensity of fat in your abdominal area. Now, that being said, that's the easiest indicator. So if your waistline is outside of the realm of where it should be, uh, then that's the primary indicator. There's very simple ways to figure this out. And my easiest way is if you're healthy and your waist is at its appropriate size for your height and weight, you're fine. Um, it's not perfect, but that's the easiest way. Now, he, also, Mike doesn't have any, he doesn't have these issues. He's not overweight. He doesn't have any health concerns that at least he didn't tell me. Now, the doctor also recommended primarily some dietary changes. Um, anyone who's concerned about high cholesterol or if their cholesterol seems to be a little high, it also could be due to inflammation. Inflammation is the primary cause of all of our health problems today. Chronic inflammation is caused by our simple lifestyle of too much bread, pasta, sugars, lack of sleep, too much caffeine, not enough exercise. Break it down. That is a typical American today. And what that lifestyle does is it causes high inflammation in the body, which causes cellular degeneration, causes degeneration in our, in our um, uh, vascular system walls, which causes uh, plaques to form. Uh, we end up with, you know, too much, or uh, I call it unhealthy cholesterol. And that is due, like I said, to chronic inflammation. If you don't have chronic inflammation, you're not going to usually have these issues. So everything starts with inflammation. I actually sell an anti-inflammatory package that consists of organic greens, uh, omega-3 uh, fish oil, and uh, turmeric, turmeric, depending on how you want to say it. And I know, Jack, we're both big proponents of turmeric. It, it is an amazing, amazing herb. Um, I recommend that to clients, and I've had great success. You can also take ginger which helps with anti, uh, it has anti-inflammatory effects and also helps to reduce cholesterol. So there are many ways to, if you have high cholesterol, to possibly reduce it. Um, in Mike's case, you know, it, it's, it's not high. I'll be honest with you, most people float, healthy people, or exercise, eat, you know, live the primal lifestyle, 
a lot of us are in that 200 to 250 range. I've always floated in that range myself. And as you age, your cholesterol will let, your total cholesterol will actually get higher. And that is not necessarily negative. It's just part of the aging process. Um, you will tend to have more inflammation as you age, so that could elevate your cholesterol levels a little bit, but nothing, nothing major. Um, I think Mike is fine. Um, like I said, you can take the anti-inflammatory package, see if that helps. And one way too is sometimes people may be consuming a little too much saturated fat. That is one area I've seen people reduce the intake of saturated fat and their cholesterol levels will seem to dip. Um, I hope that helps. Cholesterol is a very complicated uh, subject. If you, especially if you go out there and start Googling it, you will, you will lose your mind. I mean, you'll be more confused than you ever were before. So what I've given you is very, very basic information and is the simplest way to figure out what your cholesterol really means, what your HDL level, your LDL, LDL level, and your triglycerides. With those four numbers, you can use the formulas I gave you to determine whether it's a problem or not. And that is going to decide, decide whether you are actually a, a higher risk for coronary heart disease. And obviously, like I said, if you're overweight, have a gut, that's the key indicator. That's the one that I always look at. So again, if you have any questions, hit the comment section or email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Good stuff from Gary. I agree. I think the cholesterol thing is, is turned into a witch hunt. It doesn't make sense. Triglycerides, I agree, is a concern. And what I've been learning in uh, the Protein Power Life Plan book that I've been reading uh, from the doc from Dr. Uh, Michael and Mary Dan Eads um, is that as you drop triglycerides, the cholesterol that we call the bad cholesterol actually changes its structure. And when your triglycerides are high... Your cholesterol is in the form of, think of it as like compact, hard little BBs. And as your triglycerides drop, they're more of like a fluffy cotton ball structure. And they are much more benign in that second structure, that fluffy cotton ball structure, than they are in that dense BB structure and their ability to penetrate and embed themselves in arterial walls and things like that. Just another thing that, you know, the mainstream that wants to, to sell you on statins never tells you. My personal belief is if, you're, if your middle ain't bigger than your top, right, And uh, you have what, what, what doctors call slightly elevated cholesterol levels, and they want to put you on statins. My personal opinion is the statins are a bigger threat to your health than the cholesterol. That's just my opinion. I am a redneck duck farmer. I don't claim to be a doctor, but it's my opinion. And the more I read of solid science, and I am smart enough to understand it, no matter what they say because I don't have a degree, um, I'll tell you what, the more it confirms what I've always thought. Uh, I just have better ways of explaining why now. Next question I have is a question on concealed carry for ladies, especially ladies when they're jogging. That could be a problem. Hey, TSB. This is Brian Black with ITS answering another expert counsel question. This one is from Nikki who asks, what's the best holster or weapon or weapons holster for jogging? Uh, the details she gives is that she's a woman that jogs on county roads and dirt roads. She has a concealed carry permit, but her holster doesn't fit well with jogging shorts and some other details here on her routine when she jogs. So thanks for the question, Nikki. 
Um, what I'd like to do is refer you, and I'll make sure Jack gets the link too, uh, is refer you over to an article in ITS that my wife wrote about both a great resource for women, which is the well-armed woman when it comes to holsters and selections. And I will make sure Jack gets the link to that. But my wife had also done, uh, my wife Kelly, for those of you that don't know, had also done a review on ITS on a belly band holster that might or might not work for your application. Um, there isn't a strap across the top that holds the holster into the belly band. So that might be a kind of an implication that you're looking for, too. And I would very much suggest that just as further retention to keep that in the in a belly band or something like that. But that would be my suggestion from my perspective. But, again, I would very much defer to both uh, my wife the well-armed woman for that resource. So hopefully that helps you. And make sure to keep the questions coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats www.itstactical.com. Thanks for the question, Nikki. I want to take a second to acknowledge how awesome what Brian just did is and how, as always, things tend to come up and happen in sequence or uh, synchronicity. Um, it just They just do when you're on the right track. So today I was thinking, before I even got started screening the, the experts' responses today and figuring out which ones were going to go on today's show, of a graphic. If you've noticed on the expert shows, if you go to the blog instead of just download the podcast through iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, um, I've been instead of just using the same graphic over and over, I've been doing new graphics on the expert shows and some other shows. So today I found one with a bunch of light bulbs and only one light bulb's on, kind of like a bright idea type thing. And this is the caption that I put on that um, that graphic. True experts have the heart of a teacher. They do not attempt to outshine others. Rather to rather to turn on the light in the minds of those they serve, and I, I believe that's uh, experts have been come to, be, to believed in the minds of Americans as people that talk with really big words and make things really complicated to prove that they're smart. Where true experts have the ability to take things that are very complex and make them understandable by people that otherwise would not understand them. An expert, if you're truly an expert, is a teacher at, at the highest level. And to teach at the highest level, that means that you can teach the person that couldn't learn without you. That's servant teacher. Now, this is not exactly what I had in mind when I put that, but boy, it fits. What Bryant's saying here is, look, I have a general concept of where I think I'd steer you in the way of a, a belly band. He didn't even say it, but I know personally that Brian carries most of the time with a belly band himself. So he has experience with that. He's not a woman. He doesn't jog, conceal, carry as a woman so he defers to his wife, who wrote a great article on, on the belly bands for, for females carrying, and defers to a website that specifically caters to women. Do you know what that's saying? Look, I don't know freaking everything. And that's why most of my experts will say from time to time, you'll hear them in an answer, well, they'll say something about an expert. And they'll say, well, I don't really consider myself an expert, but that's what Jack calls it. That's why they actually are experts. That's what makes a person an expert. If you think you know everything about a subject, you are not an expert in that subject. When you reach the level of expert in a subject, you, you know not just how much you do know, but the gulf, the chasm of which you do not know. And as an expert, if you want to be seen as an expert in your field and have people really admire you for it and really value what you give to them, not just, oh, he's really smart, but, oh, I, I, I appreciate what the work that he or she is doing. 
then your goal needs not to be to shine brightly as an expert, but to make sure you're enlightening the people that listen to you and come to you for advice. And that is a servant attitude. And, and that servant attitude is evident in all of the people on our council. And I just like to kind of throw that out with Brian as a shining example. Again, pun not intended. Uh, seems to be happening a lot today. Um, but a shining example of what that means. But all of the expert council members. If you listen to the depth, for instance, just in our first question today that Erica went into on bone broth. You know what she could have said? You know what? Cook it till it gels. It'll be fine. But no. She gave you the why behind it so that you could understand it. That's, that's servant leadership. That's servant teacher. That's, that's what we have here on this council. So props to Brian for being willing to defer when it's the proper time to defer. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take our next question. This one being for, uh, old dog bones. And this is on dog bites and, uh, some unlucky stuff going on too for the, person asking the question i'm talking about bad luck hi joe alton md here also known as dr bones author of the brand spanking new third edition of the survival medicine handbook 699 pages of information that'll help you succeed even if everything else fails you can get it at amazon.com i'm also the founder at doomandbloom.net where you'll find over 800 posts podcasts and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster This week's question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council is from John, who writes, How do you treat a dog bite now and when the you-know-what hits a fan? And how to avoid? Last week I was bitten by a friend's dog and my son was bitten by a different friend's dog a few days later. Wow! In both cases I wasn't sure what to do. I did go to a doctor and get on antibiotics because there was a puncture wound. I treated my son's bite because it was more of a scratch and bruise. I do have your book, the second edition, and read the section on bites, but wasn't sure how to determine exactly the right course. Of the antibiotics you recommended to stock, which I have most of, which ones would work for a dog bite for me or my son? Both wounds are healing well, but I felt like this could have been handled better by me. I thought I was pretty good at reading dogs. On a side note, the doctor and later an animal control officer appeared at my house and demanded to know the dog. I didn't feel like providing that information as both owners seemed to take it seriously and were planning corrective actions. Thanks, John. Dang, John, what's going on over there? Remind me to wear a canine training suit the next time I come by to visit your buddies. Hey, you know, in the grand majority of animal bite cases, pets like cats, dogs, rodents, things like that, are the perpetrators. Most animal bites affect the hands in adults and the face, head, and neck in children. Dog bites are responsible for a 1,000 emergency care visits every day in the United States. That's according to a 1994 study. They also said that dog bites are 6.2 times more likely to be incurred by male dogs, 2.6 times more likely by dogs that haven't been neutered, and 2.8 times more likely if the dog is chained or otherwise restrained. Although more common, dog bites are usually more superficial than cat bites. The dog's teeth are relatively dull compared to a feline's. Despite this, their jaws are powerful and can inflict crush injuries to soft tissues, which is why your son had bruising. Whenever a person has been bitten, there are several important actions that should be taken. Control any bleeding with direct pressure using gloves and a bandage or other barrier. 
clean the wound thoroughly with soap and water, flushing the wound aggressively with maybe a 60 to 100 cc irrigation syringe filled with clean water will help remove embedded dirt and bacteria containing saliva. You could use an antiseptic to decrease the chance of infection, something like betadine, povidone iodine solution, or benzalkonium chloride, BZK, are pretty good choices. Now, when off-grid, don't close the wound if at all possible. Many animal bites are stitched closed in a modern medical facility, but this may be inadvisable in a survival setting. Any animal bite should be considered a dirty wound, so closing the wound may lock in dangerous bacteria. Don't forget to remove any rings or bracelets in a bite wound to the hand. If swelling occurs, they may be very difficult to remove afterwards. Use an ice pack to decrease swelling, bruising, and pain. Frequently clean and cover a recovering bite wound. Clean drinkable water or dilute antiseptic solution will be just fine for that. Apply antibiotic ointment to the area and make sure to watch for signs of infection. These may include redness, swelling, or oozing. Now, the redness will usually spread over time if it's an active infection. Now, in many cases, the site might feel unusually warm to the touch, so that's something that you might notice. Consider oral antibiotics as a precaution if you're off-grid. Now, although amoxicillin with clavulanic acid, 500 milligrams every eight hours for a week is a good first-line therapy, clindamycin, veterinary equivalent is fish sin, 300 milligrams orally every six hours, and ciprofloxacin, fish flox, 500 milligrams every 12 hours in combination are also very good choices. Azithromycin, metronidazole, and ampicillin have also been used as alternatives in the past. Remember that using metronidazole, fish zole, and then drinking alcohol will make you vomit. Youngsters should be informed about the risks of animal bites and taught to avoid stray dogs, cats, wild animals, even animals that they think they know that might belong to other people. Never leave a small child unattended around animals, even your own. Without an able-bodied person to intervene, the outcome could be tragic. This is Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times and bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, that's Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour on Blog Talk Radio, and the new current events podcast, American Survival Radio, at americansurvivalradio.com. Thanks again. Talk about servant uh, leadership and servant teaching. That's that's Doc Bones all the way, man. If you just look at the body of work he and Nurse Amy have put out over the years, really check out doomandbloom.net. There are hundreds of articles, hundreds of hours of free podcasts. Um, there's very few people in this industry that really have the work ethic to constantly be putting out quality information, and, and those two just do it all the time, so big props to them as well. Uh, last question today is another dog question. This one for Nick Ferguson on livestock guardian dogs. With that, hey, Nick, man, take it away. Hey there. Thanks for the question. Nick Ferguson here from homegrownliberty.com. Okay, this dog training question really deserves a long answer to convey what I think about it. And I had a 15-minute answer, but that was way longer than the time limit Jack has given us, expert council members. So I'm redoing this one for you guys. Now, I think it's important to define the term here. I say a livestock guardian dog is a dog that lives with and spends all its time 
with the stock that it is to guard. It needs to be bonded to the stock and desire to be with those animals and hold its territory. If it's not with the animals, it's not doing its job. So to be a livestock guardian, it has to stay with the animals, especially at night. So first, identifying the definition of what you're talking about really clarifies things before you go down a rabbit hole, so to speak. You know, it helps you keep within the boundaries and keep checking your assumptions against the definition is a really good idea. Okay, now, a dog can guard your livestock and not be a livestock guardian. How? Well, let's say I have chickens or ducks and they're in a yard and the dog has a doghouse right next to the coop. A raccoon comes along to eat a chicken. The dog comes out to defend it, his territory from the wild beast and voila, side effect is that the chickens are protected. But normally, it's a side effect. The dog normally doesn't want to defend the birds, just his space. Now, I know Charlie and Max will defend their birds, but that's not a normal thing based on my experience helping lots of people train dogs. Normally, the dog tolerates the other animals. He or she is just desensitized to the presence of those other animals. But Jack has specifically worked with his dogs to view them as part of the family. Now, I would not call... Charlie and Max, livestock guardian dogs. They sleep inside. They are pets. Now, they serve a, a second function. When they're out during the day, they're protecting their territory and they're protecting their birds. But they're not livestock guardian dogs because they're not out there all the time. So the short answer is yes. Family dogs can interact with the livestock guardian dogs. But is it best... I think it's not best. If you're well-versed in dog training and know at a glance what a dog is thinking or intending and how another dog is going to interpret its body language, then it shouldn't be much of a concern just from the interaction standpoint. But this is my primary concern, and it's a matter of desensitization. I want my livestock guardian to be sensitive to another canine presence and suspicious and maybe even downright um, repellent, aggressive towards that other canine presence. I want my livestock guardian dog to be on edge and ready to spring into action when another canine approaches his territory. The number one danger, in my opinion, especially where I live, is not raccoons, it's not possums, not panthers or bears, and that that probably goes for most of the country. It's stray and neighbor dogs. I don't want my livestock guardian dog to be friendly with the neighbor dogs who aren't trained to not mess with my livestock. The moment my livestock guardian dog lets down its guard around a stray or a neighbor dog, that's the moment I lose a dozen chickens or a $3,000 breeding stock buck. So were it me, I'd keep my pet dog and my livestock guardian dog apart, and I'd let them have their own territories and their own attentions from me. I try to wash up and not smell like a pet dog when I go out to tend my livestock just for that reason. We used to have a pet dog who would try and follow me out to the goat barn. And what I did is I encouraged my livestock guardian dog to be aggressive towards the pet dog and immediately challenged the other canine and put it on the ground. I didn't exactly encourage her to injure the pet dog. But I wanted her to know that even if the dog seems to be associated with me or another family member, that no canine was permitted in the fence and was to be confronted 
strongly as soon as possible that I wanted her to run up there and get that dog and put it on the ground and confront it immediately because that would immediately escalate things or de-escalate things. That immediately addresses that concern of there's a canine in the fence. Is it coming to attack? If it is, then boom, there's an instant fight. And I know my dog can stand up to pretty much any dog around the area. Now, if it's, if that other canine is not trying to attack my animals or my dog, then it's immediately going to submit and we're not going to have a problem. And most often, it's going to make that dog want to get the heck out of there as quickly as possible. And that is what I want a livestock guardian dog to do. Remember, you have to completely put on a different hat when you're thinking about livestock guardian dogs. It is, it's, it's a big difference between a seeing eye dog and just, you know, a pet uh, retriever. And there's a big difference between a seeing eye dog and a hunting dog. So we're looking at this from the perspective of it's, it's a working dog, like a seeing eye dog or like a police dog or a military dog. It is a trained dog. It is specifically doing a job and it needs to be businesslike. That dog needs to have its job and be proud of its job and do it well. And for us to not subvert that training in any way. So I think that's the safest course of action and the wisest. It all comes down to duties and priorities. You want that working dog to do its job and do it well. And that's why working dogs don't get petted and distracted when they're on the job. A livestock guardian dog is on the job 24-7 with brief breaks when the human comes to look at their feet, give them food. And that's one specific thing, actually, that I think you should do with a livestock guardian dog every time you see it. Inspect its feet. Run your fingers between the pads of the foot. It requires trust from the dog. It reinforces that you have power and control while not being a dominating and over-the-top display. Plus, it can head off a major problem real quick if the dog has a burr or thorn stuck in its foot. If it's used to that every time you show up, when it's in pain, it won't be as big of a deal for you to be messing with the foot. I think it's best to be standoffish, but accepting of your livestock guardian dog to avoid bonding too much with it. But that's my two cents. Great question. Thanks, guys. Keep them coming. And remember, everyone, I've got a really cool announcement and offer coming soon that will get made first to those on my mailing list. I've sent out about three emails in as many years. So I promise to not flood you with spam because ain't nobody got time for that. Also, if you want to get a discount on consulting, I have a consulting tour coming up the 1st of September where I'll be headed up to St. Louis from north-central Louisiana and possibly swinging through Kentucky and Tennessee and North Mississippi on my way home around the 6th of September. So if you've been wanting to get me out to your property, now is your chance. We've got a new class coming soon and some really cool things coming up with Homegrown Liberty. To check out what we're doing and to listen to the podcast, head over to my website and to reach me personally, send an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. Do good things. I've got a couple additions there. I think that this is a very difficult balancing act, and, and Nick's cautions are very spot on. 
What I think most people, when they ask this question or they go down this line of thinking, are really saying is, listen, if I have a livestock guardian dog and that, or a pair of them, and they live with my, my flock of goats or my cattle or, or my birds or whatever it is, and that dog stays outside. But I have a relatively small homestead. Nick has like a seven-acre homestead. I have a, a, a three-acre homestead. And I've thought about going with the full-time outside guardian dog. What, what they're actually saying is, just by spatial limitations alone, the, if, if I have a dog that lives in my house, that dog's going to go outside. They're going to know each other. And here's why I believe it can work if you're judicious about it. And you have to be very judicious about it. An example would be, Charlie and Max. And I think Nick's giving Max a little more credit for being a guardian uh, than, than he deserves. Max Max is doing exactly what Nick said. He defends his territory. I don't know you. You have to go. Charlie has legitimately bonded with the birds where he can work them, he can move them, he can herd them. I can have him chase them off the porch and I can call him off and he stops. And if something gets near those birds, it bothers him. He's like a hybrid But he's, he's Nick's right. He's not a livestock. You either are or you aren't. You're not, it's not like a dimmer switch where you're 50% a guardian dog. He has a protective attitude toward the birds, but in the end, it's, it's also partially indifference. He doesn't live with them and he doesn't worry about it if you separate him from them. But the minute there's a threat, even perceived, the ass hairs go up and the dog switched on. Where Max is more like, does this concern me? And that's more typical, and that's what Nick's talking about. But but here's why I think you can, if you have the true livestock guardian dog and you have a Charlie and Max running around the house, you can have a coexistence with them because of the way I've trained them with the cats. So I have Fox and Dana. Fox and Dana are acceptable cats. Fox and Dana belong here. Fox will curl up next to Max on the dog bed and sleep. Dana will run up to Charlie in the morning when Charlie comes out to go poo and nuzzle him with her head up under his chin and he'll look down and lick her. Let a cat they do not know come on this property and it had better be able to run and get over the fence before the dog gets him. The minute that dog sees that cat and knows that cat doesn't belong here, it's on. It is absolutely on. And they are the same way with dogs, but you can bring your dog here, and if we do a proper introduction, everything's fine, but if your dog were to, you know, somehow find its way out of my property, my dogs will tear it up, they just will, they will not tolerate it, now, that's difficult to develop a dog that has both of those attitudes, and the truth is, it's Charlie, Charlie leads that Max Follows. Um, Max was the alpha when Charlie got here as a pup. He's getting older. Charlie's got the agility. The, the alpha thing's really switched around, even though Charlie's a, you know, a hundred pound dog versus a hundred and forty pound dog. Um, and that's unusual. It's unusual, but it, it, it can be done. But I don't know if you could do a guardian dog and have them be able to let a strange, I think that's a bad idea. But I think if you have a dog that you have a guardian dog and you, when that dog's a pup, you do the proper flock bond. Which means that dog is literally raised with goats or chickens or whatever's going to be garden around it. They live together as babies and they grow up together. 
and it gets bonded. If you bring your dogs into that when that dog's a pup and they're they're at a level to be dominant and they grow an association with each other, then that dog knows that other dog. Your guardian dog goes, oh, that's the dog that lives with the human in the house. That dog's allowed here. All other dogs must die. And I, I really think that's how a good livestock guardian dog has to be. You either run away or I kill you. That And that because you have to train a livestock guardian dog to that level because sometimes a dog with air quotes around it shows up that's not a dog. It's a coyote. And a coyote is a creature that kills or dies. And it fights with a savageness and a viciousness that most dogs, including mine, are really not prepared for. They're not built for it. It's not what they're made for. You see domestic dogs, they grab each other by the neck when they get in a fight and they start pulling at each other. And a lot of times they don't do a lot of harm because that's where they're thick and they've developed that. And a coyote will come in and go up under the throat or get the belly and rip and slash. And a dog has to be specially trained in the right breed and the right size and the right amount of agility to handle something like that. So if you teach a livestock guardian dog to not be vicious against a strange dog, then you're setting it up for failure when something that comes in and is willing to kill it shows up. And, and that's the reality. And Nick's right. Stray dogs, coyotes, those are your two big ones. That's what that dog has to be on. And a dog's a dog to a dog. That's why coyotes sometimes breed with domestic dogs. Last thing, when, when Nick was talking about the feet, man, um, I'll save it for the ending segment today because I have a product out about hot, for hot spots on dogs. But um, if I wasn't able to handle my dog's feet, I'd have a problem right now. I'll, I'll save it for later. But pups, handle their feet, handle their feet, handle their feet. All four of them, check them. I, you'll, you'll see why when I get to the uh, product of the day. In fact, pff, I just realized this is the last question of the day, so uh, we're going to go into a question for me uh, next. And it's basically somebody wrote a question said, Jack, what's up with the quail aviary? Good, bad, indifferent, you know, what's going on? You've made some comments that it's not quite working out the way you expected, and you might do some different things. It's actually working really good now. And I'll tell you that, you know, this is about, you know, are you an expert? Well, nobody's an expert in everything. Um, and sometimes it takes experience and time, and whoever is doing that is going to find the problem. So one of the problems we had with the quail is when they we, we put a new batch in when we did the aviary. And they were like three weeks old when I put them in there. And uh, so then we had to wait like four weeks for the eggs to come out, right? And at four weeks, you know, Into it, so seven weeks total age. You go in, there's three eggs first day. Next day, there's like ten eggs. Next day, eggs everywhere. You know, like three, three fifteen packs of eggs come out of the aviary. This goes on for like a week, and um, all of a sudden, the egg count just starts dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. And I'm just thinking, you know, we went past the solstice. That was our longest day of the year. They're supposed to get 14 hours of light, but there's still plenty of hours of light. I'll have artificial light in there. And some other things were going on. I'm thinking, you know... Maybe there's a reason that people have raised them in hutches for 2,500 years. You know, maybe there's a reason they've been so domesticated that way. If you let them go, they just die. They can't even reproduce in the wild. They, they can't survive. And uh, maybe I should go back to doing something like that. Well, as Dorothy was feeding them, she realized that since we gave up on keeping them in a particular section and we're letting them run the whole 50 feet of the aviary, and they seem much happier that way, And we determined that growing food for them on the ground in there doesn't really work. It's, it's, it's too time-consuming. It's not worth it. And we've just gone to keeping a big, deep litter of wood chips in there for them. Uh, but they were all spending their time in, like, the, the furthest east side of it, so to speak. 
And we have their feed and their water kind of spread out, but mostly in the, the furthest west side because we have shade cloth there, and you would think they'd want to be there. Well, for some reason, they want to be on the other side. All she did was move their food and water, the majority of it, to the section they were spending time in. Their consumption of their food went up, therefore their overall protein intake went up, and boom, out came the eggs again. So the process works. And watching these birds for several months, I think they're happy in this environment. Uh, a buddy of mine named David and I, though, have been kind of working on developing an aquaponics system. And a beautiful place for the grow beds for this aquaponics system would be right in there with the quail. So now we're going to function stack. So what we're going to have are 12 grow beds, um, four in each of the three sections for the aquaponics system. We're going to do wicking beds, we're going to do raft float, and we're going to do media, flush and drain media, all of them to a single unified system. And they're going to go back to, three, to two IBCs, at least two IBCs. And what I've decided to do is on the east side of my aviary, my aviary is 10 feet wide by 50 feet long, and it's made with cattle panels and hardware cloth. I am going to, and my beehives used to be just to the uh, east of it, and we've moved the beehives out of there because it was too close to the, too close to everything, really. Too close to my neighbors, too close to the aviary that we built after we put the beehives in, and, uh, you know, we had some students get stung, and also, so we'll move the, move the bees to like the far west corner of the property. They're down by the pond, they have lots of water, and they'll be down there where they can't bother anybody. So, that opened that space up, and I have no real plans for that space. So we're going to put in probably like an 8 by 12 or maybe 8 by 16 or so greenhouse. And with it's not like the one we tried to build out of cattle panels. I've decided that is not the best way to build a greenhouse. I'm just going to stick and, brick for, stick and frame it uh, with, uh, with uh, polycarb uh, panels on it. Uh, do it lean-to style, so probably 8 foot high in the back, 7 foot 6 in the front. Straight lean-to, bring that watershed down. And that's going to put us in a position where our, our um, IBCs are in there. We can open everything up in the summertime so there's lots of ventilation, but we can close it down in winter, keep our water warm longer, and then it runs through our primary system. And we talked about it. David was over last night. We talked about it. We think probably the best thing we could do is we can actually um, put in a small on-demand gas-powered uh, water heater because we really don't have that much power out there available to us in that area. We have one, uh, I think, 15-amp circuit out there, so heating is, with everything else that that circuit's running right now, would be a problem. So we can take the heat off of that and only run it when necessary. All we need to do is maintain a water temperature above 55, 60 degrees, which isn't that hard here, along with the thermal gain just from the greenhouse itself and insulating the tanks. The, the heat loss will be from the actual grow beds, and we'll run less grow beds in the winter, uh, because just because you would, right? So maybe instead of running all 12 grow beds in the winter, we'll run four. So we'll just we'll have valves to shut that off. So now we'll have grow beds, aquaponics, we'll be raising tilapia in the greenhouse, and we're going to be pumping the water from the aquaponics system into the tunnel that's going to have 60% shade cloth over all of it. So we're going to have an ideal environment. Now, what this does for the quail, the grow beds we're doing with plastic stock tanks, the heavy-duty plastic ones, they're right there about four foot uh, long by about two and a half feet wide by, I think, 18 inches deep. And we're going to set them so they're at about you know chest height. 
so you can work on them. That's going to give about two feet of clearance underneath them. So if you need to pick up an egg underneath one, you only have to reach in a foot and a half, and you've got a two-foot clearance to see it and get to it. So it's going to be still easy to pick the eggs up, plenty of room to work and move in between them. On top of that, on top of that, what we're going to be able to do is then that's going to give all of this cover, and the quail are going to love this. They're going to have all these different shade options, all these different compartments to hide in, all these different places to go. So that they're, one of the reasons they're in the area they're in so much now is a wild sunflower grew in there, and the damn thing's up to I have to keep cutting it so it doesn't grow into the mesh. And it's, it's, you know, you can't get your arms around it. It's grown so wide and stocky from that. So it's like a little jungle. So they all relate to that. They like that spot. So it's not like they all want to be together. They all want to be in that spot. It's like if you had a room and there was nothing in that room except a couch and the couch is right in front of the TV set. You put 10 kids in there and walk away. You come back, all the kids are piled on the couch together. Not because they want to be together because they want to all be in the one place where the couch is and the TV set is. So by giving them all this space, they'll kind of move out more. We'll just run automated watering for the birds across the bottom of those racks. There'll be water all through the system, never have to touch it again, put a couple hopper feeders in, and the quail are pretty much on autopilot. And uh, we're going to run water. I have water to the thing already, but I have water from another leg of the system coming from another direction. I only need to put in maybe, uh, maybe 75 feet of pipe to bring that line in. And what that will do is give us two different paths for water redundancy so we can get a fail-safe system uh, because it's running on gas heat in the winter, two different sources of water, uh, and we'll have a system that pretty much runs itself. So that's the plan for that. And most of this work will be completed by our workshop, which is going to be the last week of October. So it'll be the weekend that butts up against Halloween. So it'll be like the Sunday's the 30th. It'll be that That like from that Wednesday through that Sunday will be our workshop. I am not letting people register for it yet. I'm still looking for instructors. I'll put a link in the show notes today. This one's going to be different. It's not going to be all permaculture. Yeah, we're going to do the aquaponics thing in a big way, but we're not going to be planting trees. We're not going to be doing designs and stuff like that. I'm going to have more instructors than I usually do. Some of the guys you know are going to be back. John Pugliano will be there. He's going to be doing a really cool presentation on how to... Um, structure things if you and four guys want to go in and buy a piece of property together and how to do it so you don't end up hating each other everything's legal everything's understandable you can create your own tax advantages and if somebody wants to leave how there's an exit strategy for that that's going to be one example of what we're doing i've got people who are going to be doing how to make homemade soap i've got some other cool people i'm lining up right now to do things we'll do mead making um i've got some new alchemy that i'm doing with uh low carb uh things that i'll just You drink them, and they're not alcoholic, and uh, but they're cool. And uh, I'll be maybe doing a little class on that, maybe some stuff on some fermented foods. It's going to be like a homestead skills type class. We might play around with some airsoft guns. I'm planning on doing six classes a day, one-hour classes each. That gives us two hours of float time where people can just hang out. You don't have everything butted right up against each other. We're not rushing through things. We're probably going to have the entire thing filmed. All students will have free access to all the videos. It's going to be a cool one. And if you'd like to teach a class that you can do in one hour, and if if parts of it make it take longer, you could get all the complex things done and teach a class, or you could do it slideshow. It doesn't have to be uh, you know a hands-on type of thing. Uh, let me know. Jack at the survival podcast.com, TSPC event in the subject line. 
pitch me your idea, and uh, I'll take a look at it. And those of you that have already pitched me, uh, I should be getting back with you guys soon on trying to set things up. All right. With that, I do want to remind you guys, if you like this show and you want to support the work I do, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And I want to remind you, the other way you can support this show is by going to tspaz.com. tspaz.com will take you to a page on the Survival Podcast website. It is, uh, again, tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And when you get there, you'll see three links. One says, to shop on Amazon for any and all items, click this link. Click it. Go buy whatever you were going to buy on Amazon anyway. All I'm asking is before you go to Amazon, go there first. Do your shopping on Amazon. Don't spend any more money, and you will support the show because we get credit for your business. That means I give Amazon free advertising every day, and you guys shop on Amazon, and we all win. Uh, that's an easy way. But you'll also see to see the current item of the day, click here. If you do that today... Uh, or if you've gotten an email or saw me on social media with today, today's time of the day relates right back to what Nick was talking about with dogs and feet. And this is important. Today's item of the day is Granix Bitter Apple for Dogs. If you've never seen this stuff, it's basically a spray. They also make kind of an ointment. And when a dog has a hot spot where they're chewing or licking and they're making it worse and you can't stop them from doing it, you can either put them in the cone of shame. And those of you who have seen the little Disney movie know what that is, right? The big cone that makes them look like a record player phone from days of old, or you can use this stuff. You put it on the area you don't want the dog to chew and lick, and he'll lick it once, and that'll be the end of that, because it is nasty tasting. Doesn't hurt him, completely safe, I've used it a lot of times on different dogs, and it works really great. Now, here's why it's important to, with pups, touch their feet, play with their feet, manipulate their feet, get them to where they just don't worry about their feet being touched. And boy, I had a shepherd and collie when I was a kid. You touch this dog's feet, he would snap at you. This dog never bit anybody, but he'd snap at you if you touched his feet. So if you do it when they're pups, they, they get desensitized to it. Charlie, I don't know what he's done, but he's got two very raw spots on both of his back feet, like right on his like middle toes on both feet, hair worn off, and uh, I don't know. He doesn't get hot spots. We, we're really good about their diet and all. And a lot of times, hot spots, that's a big part of it. He doesn't have any other markings on him anywhere else. And it's an odd place that he would have actually caused an injury to himself that way. He's injured his nose a lot with chasing rats and all. I don't know if maybe he got into a plant that had some kind of uh, residue on it that, that caused a rash, and then he made it worse or what. But it's raw, and it looks painful, and you feel bad for him. So I'm like, I know. I whip out the Dr. Christopher's Comfrey ointment. And I put it on his toes. He lets me do it, no problem, no upset. You know, he's and then immediately goes, "What's that?" and licks it all off. I don't know how that dog can lick this stuff. I'm sure you wouldn't want to eat comfrey ointment, but he licks it off. Even with that, it was beginning to make an improvement. Um, but David, the guy with the uh, the aquaponic stuff, um, made me some comfrey tincture, which is you know straight comfrey and alcohol basically. So fine, I drip that on there, and it's a little harder for him to get off, but. Freaking dog licks that, too. Well, okay, here's the solution. You slather on the Dr. Christopher's comfrey ointment, and you spray this bitter apple crap on top of it. He's going to leave it alone. And it can be used that way with another treatment. You can use it with, there's some good sprays out there, and I'll probably feature one of those next where you, you, you spray on the hot spot, and it really helps the dog. But it needs to stay on there, and the dog needs to stop licking it. Some of those sprays the dogs don't like, and they kind of back off, but some they still will lick and chew because it bothers them enough that they're going to do it. 
And they don't have the brain. You can't rationalize with them like you can with a person. Like, I know it sucks, but you got to stop, right? So you put this bitter apple on, and it's over. And then sometimes the small areas where they're just biting and chewing, they just need to stop. Just a spray of this, and that'll stop the chewing and give the, the wound time to heal. So definitely, you know, listen to Nick's advice on the feet thing. You've got you've to gotta desensitize a dog to feet because that's many times where they're going to get an injury. I, I recently had, with Max, had to pull a sand spur that was, like, up in between two of his toes. And that's a, that's a delicate area. And it's a little unnerving to have, you know, a front paw. So you've got the mouth of a 145-pound German Shepherd that could literally take the bottom of your arm off, and you're pulling, like the mouse pulling a thorn out of a lion's paw. Uh, but he was a trooper with it. He knew I was trying to help him, and he, he knew that it was there and it needed to come out, and he knew me touching his feet was okay. So it's good advice from Nick. But again, tspaz.com to support the show. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you learned a lot today. Man, I mean what I said about you know the graphic that we put together for today's show. I want... Everybody that's part of this show as an expert and a teacher to be here to turn the light on the minds of those they serve, and that's you, the audience. And hopefully we've served you well today. Uh, with that, I want to talk about our closing song today. This is another song by the Avid Brothers. Um, I discovered these guys like a couple of months ago, the first time somebody sent me one of their songs, and I really liked it. This one's called A Head Full of Doubt and A Road Full of Promises. I'd like to read a couple of the, the lines to you says, there's a darkness upon me that's flooded in light. In the fine print, they tell me what's wrong and what's right. And it comes in black, and it comes in white. And I'm frightened by those that don't see it. When nothing is owed or deserved or expected, and your life doesn't change by the man that's elected, if you're loved by someone you never rejected, decide what to be and go be it. And... That alone is pretty cool stuff, but I, I always put the video up of the song on YouTube for you guys uh, to take a look at. And I wanted to like encourage you to maybe go actually watch the video for this song today. Um, here's what was you know on the official video how the description is. Um, the Avid Brothers have released a new video for Head Full of Doubt, Road Full of Promise from the band's latest album, I and Lo I and love and you. It's spar, it's spar but stunning work of art featuring animated paintings by Jason Ryan Mitchum. The video shows the rise, fall, and inevitable decay of rampant urban development. Head, of, Head Full of Doubt and Road Full of Promise was written about the temporary nature of our buildings and our mentality, says Scott Avitt. Accepting the temporary state we must be in Jason, uh, with his landscape paintings and some that I'd seen uh, that he had animated, dealt with the temporary nature of the world around us. Rather than make a bunch of different paintings for the animation, Mitchum gradually altered a single painting 2,600 times. Ten alliterations to the painting equaled one second of film. It's very cool, and it's very simple, but it makes an incredible point about that temporary nature of things. But in the end, as the whole town is gone and everything has crumbled and a field has grown back, there's a road in the distance and a little car goes down the road. It is not in our great buildings that we actually do great things. It's in our journeys. Head full of doubt, but a road full of promise. And 
If you're loved some by somebody that doesn't reject you and you know what you want to be, go be it and you've got all you need. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's a darkness upon me that's flooded in light In the fine print they tell me what's wrong and what's right And it comes in black and it comes in white And I'm frightened by those who don't see it Where nothing is owed, deserved or expected And your life doesn't change by the man that's elected If you're loved by someone you're never rejected Decide what to be and go be it There was a dream And one day I could see it Like a bird in a cage I broke in And demanded that somebody free it Tell you what's wrong and what's right And it flies by day and it flies by night And I'm frightened by those who don't see There was a dream That one day I could see it Like a bird in a cage I broke in And demanded that somebody free it
In the fine print they tell me what's wrong and what's right There's a darkness upon me that's flooded in light And I'm frightened by those who don't see it 